I grew up in Kansas, out in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere. Family of uh, nine people, my mom and dad, and seven of us children. And um, one of the highlights of our day was when we came to sit at the table to eat our dinner time. And um, everyone at the table had their place. Dad, for obvious reasons, always sat at the head of the table. And mom was always to his right. I don't know if it was planned that way, but it kind of sounds almost scriptural, doesn't it? My oldest sister, Della, was directly to the left. And then a few of us kids scattered on, the, on each side. And then at the far end was my grandfather, uh, Alva Guy Vernon, and or my sister, Julie. And um, we all had our place at the table. It was there that we fought over the last morsels of food. I, I, I learned about food at that time. We ate uh, food that was hearty and filling, but if it, it never took the second lap around the table. Uh, so you take what you want the first time around, and you better eat what you took, or you're going to be in big trouble. It was often that we would retire from the dinner table to the living room, and my father would read scripture, and we would pray together. And Della, as I recall, being the oldest, oftentimes got inspired, and she just prayed and prayed. She's about 10 years older than me, so I was just a little kid. Sometimes I would be on my knees and fall asleep, and sometimes I would play with the things in the couch, and um, I never could figure out why some of our family members prayed so long. But uh, today we're going to talk about two things that I think are important in the Christian walk, eating and praying. So we're going to do two parts. We're going to stop halfway through before we go to the second section. And we're going to receive communion because we're going to talk about the table. And this is his table. And so as we move through this morning, I hope that you'll make the direct connection between what we're talking about here, and what we're going to celebrate together in a few moments over here. Uh, If you would sort of just prepare your minds for that. So the two topics that uh, we're topping this off, this series off with, is they went to house from house to house, um, eating together and enjoying one another's favor and praying. Um, If you look at the kingdom of God on earth, And in heaven, through these two lenses, it will change your perspective on everything. How we see food, or the theology of food, and the theology or the understanding of prayer. Uh, When I was in school, in college, they taught theology. You know what that is. The study of God. It comes from the word logos. Theo, God, Logos. And then remember in uh, John, it says, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So we understand the theology. They taught about soteriology, which is the study of salvation. They about, talked about hermeneutics and eschatology, the, la, es, the study of last things. But they never talked about foodology. So today, I don't know what proper term there is, 
But we're going to fly over scripture at 30,000 feet and we're going to take a little look at a few scriptures along the way and uh, evaluate them a little closer. And hopefully by the end, you'll see how the concept of eating and food is laced throughout scripture. In fact, we're going to begin at Genesis 3 and we're going to end at Revelation 3. And all of those scriptures or many places along the way, we hear about food and how it is associated or connected with our theology. The study of food pertains to the understanding of the kingdom of God. If we understand the biblical understanding of food and how it's seen throughout scripture, we understand the character and the nature of God and the culture of the kingdom. Uh, there are dozens of examples. Just to kind of fly over at 30,000 feet, there, there's the meals uh, that the Jews celebrated, the meals of remembrance. Out of eight of them, one was the Passover meal, the meal of the celebration of the unleavened bread, the celebration of the first fruits, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was woven into their celebrations. There were times of fasting and there were times of feasting. There were times when the meal represented a covenant. There were times when meal represented a time to negotiate. There There were examples of meals that led to betrayal. There were times when meals led to writing things that were wrong. Remember the story of Esther and the meal that they had together? Um, so today, let's just take a look at it from about five or six different perspectives. God's provision, God's authority, God's renewal, his invitation, his grace, and his reconciliation. The story that includes food begins in Genesis, right? God said you can eat of anything, but you can't eat of this fruit, fruit of this tree. We know the enemy came along and tempted Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He challenges her thinking, and it's an issue of trust. Did God really say, well, yeah, we can eat of everything except for this one. And then he responds by saying, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I wish I didn't know good and evil. I wish I only knew good and not evil. I'm not sure why it would be a temptation to know evil, but that was what he proposed to Eve. What the enemy is saying to Eve is, God cannot be trusted. You cannot trust his word. Then we'll look at Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing, delicious, appetites, desires. It was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it as well. 
the foundation of the kingdom deals directly with whether or not we can whether or not we can trust the sovereign God of the universe. The, it all boils down to, do you trust yourself or do you trust God? And if he created billions upon billions of stars and by his very spoken word caused them to become, why in the world would I stand up to a God like that and say, I think I know better? <laughs> The issue of kingdom deals with trust. Let's look at some of the repercussions or the consequences. They were exposed. At first, they were naked and unashamed, and now they're naked and ashamed. They were filled with fear. They were filled with separation from each other. This woman you gave me, it's all her fault. I'm learning from this example that sin promises what it cannot deliver, and it demands more than we can pay. Think about uh, any addiction. You can pick anything, drugs, alcohol, pornography. When you are being tempted by anything that leads to addiction, it promises relief from pain. It promises, you know, liquid, what do they call it? Liquid courage. It promises that you'll be courageous. It promises all these things and then you wake up the next morning with a hangover and you understand the damage that has been done and the cost. Esau is an example. Remember, Esau went out hunting. Jacob had already taken his birthright, but then Esau chose to trust his scheming brother and trade his birthright for a simple bowl of soup. Isn't it interesting how sin, like you give them all of you, and it takes everything from you. <laughs> the exchange is the exchange is not equal by any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's the right time to ask this, but why? I've never really heard a sermon that I understood on why Esau would trade his birthright for bread and stew. I mean, wasn't he going to eat anyway? Like, is there like a one sentence you can clarify that, or is that like a whole different? Never go to the grocery store when you're hungry. That's right. <laughs> oh, so it was just one of those things. He was he overcome by his own desire for food. Wasn't yeah. Yeah. Try to tell him that when he's hungry. Yeah. 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 Yep. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised, it doesn't say he despised Jacob, he despised his birthright. You ever wonder why people can walk away from kingdom promises and say, no, that's not for me. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Who wouldn't jump after that? But we despise it because we don't trust God to fulfill those things. And then there's the story of Jesus' temptation, and that goes right direct connected, directly connected with Adam and his sin, Adam and Eve. Uh, remember, the tempter came and said, if, you were, if you're really hungry, if you're really who you say you are, turn this stone into bread. 
and three times Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And this time he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is a, that is a statement of absolute trust. You've heard it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> That's what Jesus was saying. So, don't you love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him or submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So, it's the story of trust. It's the story of trust. Food and trust. It wasn't long in the next few chapters in Exodus where the children of Israel, after suffering 400 and, what was it, 450 years of slavery in Egypt, God was ready to set his people free. The story is really long. It takes up 23, 25 chapters of the book of Exodus or something like that. They found themselves, they escaped their slavery, they crossed uh, the sea, they were on dry ground, and they discovered they didn't pack enough food for 40 years. And God provided manna for them. I kind of think of manna from my days in Kansas, because we would get food supplements, you get peanut butter in a can, and you get bags of pinto beans and cornmeal. If I come to your house, I'll eat cornmeal, but I would prefer something other than cornmeal because I've had it with cornmeal. <laughs> powdered milk and powdered potatoes. And I kind of think of manna as that powdered potato, potatoes. And uh, so uh, God provided... Yeah, you could make... Was the, the banana bread, and we could go on and on. There's a song about all of that. Manna burgers, manna bagels, manna cotti. Okay, stop me, stop me. Uh, <laughs> remember, God said, take what you need for the day. On the day before the Sabbath, take enough for two days. And that was his final word. What he was saying is, Trust me daily, and I will provide for you. In Exodus 16, Exodus 16, verses 15, it says, When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread of the Lord has given you to eat. When we choose not to trust God's provision... We open up ourselves to several negative consequences. And we see that when the children of Israel gathered more, it just maggots the next day. And the thing, the, the manna that was left on the, the ground was just kind of soaked up. And we, we experience some, some difficulties when we choose not to trust God. Anxiety and worry. When we tell the God of the universe that we know better than him, we're asking, we're inviting anxiety and worry. That's one of the most significant consequences of choosing not to trust God's provision 
It's what we end up what we end up with is ultimately worrying about everything, and it not only affects our mental well-being, but it can also impact our physical health. Yeah. Uh, in fact, studies show that worry and anxiety can cause headaches, sleep disorders, and even high blood pressure, and the list goes on and on and on from there. When we don't trust in God's provision, we're essentially telling ourselves that we're responsible for our own future and lead and it leads to unnecessary anxiety and worry when we don't trust god will will provide for us we become literally discontent who i don't know about that cuz i like to complain from time to time <laughs> this can lend to a, a never ending cycle of wanting more and more without ever feeling satisfied. You've heard the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side. You've heard the keeping up with the Joneses, and just about the time you catch up with the Joneses, they refinance, and then you're back in trouble again. Uh, we, always, we were taught in our uh, uh, stewardship classes that you know, we look at so-and-so over here, and they have something that we like. They take fancy vocations. We look at so-and-so over here. They have a nice house. And we look so-and-so, and they have, you know, this or that. And we want this, this, and this. And oftentimes, our friends will have only this, and only this, and only this. The lack of contentment can lead to poor financial decisions, and we try to fill the void that can only be filled with God's provision. My wife teaches me this on a regular basis. God provides. He's always provided. And he'll continue to provide. And I'm, I'm like, well, yes, but, yes, but. <laughs> she says, no, God provided. He's always provided. And he will always provide. What's the third one on the list? Missed opportunities. When we're not trusting God's provision, we may miss out on opportunities that he presents to us. This can be an opportunity for professional growth or to serve others or to share God's word or to make a positive impact on our world. The list goes on and on and on. Trusting him is the, is the basis for seeing opportunities that God puts in our way. When we don't trust that God will provide for our needs, we, be, we may be too focused on our own worries and our own fears to recognize the blessings that are right there in front of our faces. I don't know if any of you have read John Eldridge. I'm a fan of John Eldridge. He writes like I think. He's a nature guy. He raises horses and lives up in the mountains. And he often talks about how nature tells us about the beauty of God. All of nature points directly to God. Remember the verse, oh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's next on the list? Strained relationships. Mm -hmm. Not trusting in God's provision can also put a strain on our relationships with others. We become overly protective with our resources and time. We become selfish. We become isolated. Uh, we may become resentful towards others who, who, who we perceive as having more than we do. 
uh, we, we can become bitter and anger and ultimately break down the relationships that we have with other people, relationships that are important to us. And what's the last one? Consequences. Okay. Can you see the connection? If you're not trusting God, how can you have a, a vital, vibrant uh, Christian experience? When we choose not to trust God's provision, we risk becoming spiritually stagnant. We may feel that our actions and our decisions must solely be our own, based on our own abilities, leading us to become prideful or arrogant. This can hinder our ability to grow in our faith and put more trust in ourselves rather than God. Matthew 6.11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. Can you live day by day trusting God? See the grass, see the birds, see how God feeds and takes care of all of that. Will he not much more take care of you? And so the children of Israel had to understand. It took them 40 years to get it, and then they still didn't quite get it. You trust God today to provide. Now, I'm not disregarding the idea of stewardship or planning for the future. It's not saying that. It is saying that God is the ultimate provider, and we can't rely on ourselves. When it comes to experiencing the sufficiency of God, We're not talking about what God can do. We're talking about what we need to do. And what we need to do is turn our minds back to God. Dallas Willard said it well, didn't he? Well, let's skip ahead to 1 Kings. We're not quite through the Old Testament yet. Remember the story of Elijah? How he, uh, boy, he had a great day in ministry when he challenged the prophets and he said, uh, build an altar. And remember, they marched around the altar. They cut himself and he kind of poked fun at them. Maybe, maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe he's out to lunch. Then he built another altar to God. And he said, pour water, no more water. And fire came and consumed the altar. And it made Jezebel really mad, really, really mad. And she decided that she wasn't going to sleep or eat till he was dead. And he ran for his life. And he found himself out in the wilderness, tired, hungry, discouraged, and despondent. 1 Kings 19, 5 through 6. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up, do what? Eat, eat. He looked around and there was by his head some bread. And it was baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he drank. And then he laid down again. Then look at verses 7 and 8. The angel Lord came back of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mount of God. I want to talk to those of you who are engaged in ministry and who do not take time for Sabbath. 
Sabbath and rest and nutrition are a spiritual exercise. Amen? Because we need to back away, to shut down. We need a jammy day where we don't comb our hair or brush our teeth and we sit by a fire and read a book, if that's what it means. We need to back off because physical exhaustion is telling God, God, I don't need you. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And God is saying, no, you can't. (laughs) You need to take a rest. I read a statistic somewhere around 40% of pastors have thought seriously about leaving ministry and leaving their church altogether. 40%. Yeah, it's even higher than that. Yeah. This, this year alone, last year, 7,000 churches closed their doors in the USA and Canada. 7,000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it didn't yield people changing revival. We, we, we yeah. Like, you know, if God would just do this wonderful thing, kind of backfired on him. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. We have to make sure our relationship is correct. We want to affect everything around us. We want this great explosion. Yeah. 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 I think we want to be productive instead of fruitful. And and can can I just share a little experience? I I don't I won't try not to take too time too much time. Two thousand and twelve, we were in Philadelphia, six and a half million people strong in the urban area of Philadelphia. In my denomination, there were only six churches in six. That's one church for every million people. <laughs> it's not very many. So nobody knew who we were, what we stood for. And um, they, they asked Linda and I to come and be missionaries to Philadelphia. And we brought in mission teams, and we built, and we did, and this and that. And, boy, we were going from 5 in the morning till late at night, every day, day after day after day. We had staff members and volunteers, and we we were serving 10,000 meals a month just in our compassionate ministry. And God said, not quite verbally, is this really what you want? And it's like I didn't know how to answer him. It's like, isn't that what I'm supposed to want? Um, That was in 2012, Christmas Day 2012. Linda was in the emergency room. And um, her life was at stake. We had pushed it. We had pushed it to the limit. And um, I'm just learning the joy of simplicity. There is joy in simplicity. Do we need to win thousands and millions of people? Or do we need to bear fruit in our, in our Christian walk? Truth is, we can't. Yeah. He has to do it. That's exactly right. And if he does it for one person, not the other, that's not how we count in the kingdom anyway. That's not how, 
that, that's not how you, we measure. <laughs> Yeah, man. Well, I'm going to back, get back. Uh, yeah. You said for those in the ministry, but outside the ministry, the Sabbath is just as equally important, especially for workaholics. It's almost yeah. it's really impossible. They really have to make an effort to do yeah. the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. It's connected. Our, our identity is connected with what we're doing some, sometimes. But, you know, some people are geared. They just have to be doing things. Yeah. I yeah. said when something is said three times, make sure you take note. And I'm not sure how many, but it's more than three times that God says, remember the Sabbath. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We need it. I, I have no guilt days where it's just like, I'm going to veg and I'm not going to feel guilty. Linda gives me permission and I do likewise with her. <laughs> so... Remember when Jesus was tempted after he had been in the wilderness? Listen to Matthew 4.11. The test was over, the devil left, and in his place angels, and angels came and took care of his needs. I think he had a really good meal, don't you? I think he had a really good meal. Yes, yeah. We're on invitation. Uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And the Lord came along and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Why? Because I'm coming to your house today. Jesus Christ stepped into Zacchaeus' world, into his life, and said, I'm inviting myself to your house for dinner. (laughs) I'm not sure how that would go over today, but apparently it was okay back then. In fact, it was probably a high honor for him. Then Jesus entered and walked through the Jericho, Luke 19. There was a man there. His name was Zacchaeus. They had tax man and quite rich. He wanted desperately to see Jesus, but the crowd was in his way. He was a short man and he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into the sycamore tree so he could see Jesus when he came by. Verses 5 through 7, when Jesus got to the tree, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be a guest at your home. And so Zacchaeus said, no, my house isn't in order. I've got things to do. And could you make an appointment for later? It's the, uh, the translation I'm reading from says, Zacchaeus scrambled out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with, with him. And everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? Wow. Zacchaeus stood there a little stunned. He stammered a apologetically and he said master i give away half my income to the poor and if i'm caught cheating i pay four i will pay four times the damages and jesus said today salvation is in this home here he is zacchaeus the son of abraham for the son of man listen to this i'm not sure it says it in your translation the son of man came to find and restore. Whoa. That was one unforgettable meal. <laughs> it was amazing. 
We talk about God's prevenient grace. God has set the table. He's sent the invitation. He's knocking on the door and he's just inviting us in. It's that simple. Then Jesus was accused of eating with publicans and sinners, uh, Mark 2.15. And he reached at the table, and he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus rubbed shoulders with the scroungy, dirty outcasts that were despised by society, and he was okay with that. There was one time Jesus gathered for a meal at Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus' house, and Mary broke the alabaster jar, and she poured the entire context on Jesus' feet. And then she let down her hair in public and she bent over at Jesus' feet and dried his feet with her hair. I'm telling you, socially, that was not acceptable. It wouldn't be today and it certainly was not back then. What kind of woman? We know what kind of woman she is now. But Jesus said, it's okay. She's preparing me for my burial. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. We know the story of the prodigal son and how when the son came back, Jesus said, kill the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. My son who was lost has been found. He's returned. I heard this past week that Peter denied Jesus or failed Jesus eight times or more over and over and over and over again. He failed Jesus. And then the closing scene is Peter out fishing, Jesus on the shore. They cast their nets, pull in a a load of fish. Peter recognizes that it's Jesus. He gets out of the boat. He swims over and Jesus prepares a meal He prepares a meal. Meals in in this society meant a lot of things. Someone comes to your house, they're as good as family. They're as good as family. They get refrigerator rights. They, you know, they, it's uh, mikasa sukasa. Meals were a symbol of reconciliation. You're not just forgiven. You're part of the family. Meals were where covenants were made. And so here, it all happened right there, right there with Peter and Jesus on the shore. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, take care of my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. That was a covenant that was being made between Peter and Jesus, they ate together and it was, it was a covenant. Jesus invites us to those kinds of meals. I never realized this until just a few weeks ago. Remember 
In the 23rd Psalm, thou preparest a table in the presence of mine enemies. I always thought, I just want to open your thought to this. I always thought, na 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 na. I get food and you don't. God's taking care of me and he's not taking care of you. In light of what we understood between Peter and Jesus, do you understand the power of that psalm? He's saying Jesus Christ is the great reconciler. He brings us to the table together so that we can enter into a a covenant relationship, a repairing of what is broken, a mending, a redemptive relationship. So when we say, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies, he's saying, your, your enemy is just as important to me as you are, and I love them as much as you do, and in fact, call him part of your family. Whoa. That's kingdom culture. Adam and Eve broke the covenant. Listen to this. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Welcome to the banquet table. 